See where it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. This, we read this a lot and we think of Jesus and the cross, but in the mind of the Old Testament prophet, this would have brought into his mind that scapegoat that was innocently ultimately smitten or stricken for the sins of the people. And a couple of New Testament passages that would be helpful to look at too. Actually, just go down to verse 12 as well. Um, Down to the bottom of verse 12. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So the intercession part, obviously the scapegoat isn't capable of doing, but that same imagery of one bearing the sin of the other is a theme woven through scripture. Hey, don't don't be unaware of how changes in our culture that just seem like cultural changes, progressions or digressions, affect people's ability to comprehend the gospel. So I kind of alluded to this a little bit on Sunday, but I want to flesh this out a little bit more before we go any further. I think one of the greatest dangers in our culture to the minimization of punishment and to the expulsion of discipline to the point that nowadays like discipline and punishment almost seem like swear words in parenting, in the church, in schools, discipline and in places of employment, you don't discipline your employee, you don't punish your employee, you give them a verbal warning, then a second verbal warning, then a written letter, then a second letter, then a third letter, then a bookmark, then on and on and on and on and on, right? And I think you can never get rid of this person. You can never fail a student. Okay, if cult, and this is, I believe this is demonic. If culture succeeds at taking out of the whole Western mindset a notion that punishment and discipline are appropriate, then how in the world is the gospel ever going to make sense to anybody? Because the whole concept of punishment and discipline makes you aware of your inadequacies. And hopefully, if you're confronted by God and the Holy Spirit, makes you aware of your need for some something, either punishment to come upon you or someone to be punished on your behalf, and so forth and so on. This is, this is woven through the pages of the Old Testament into the New and all through human history, right up to the present, but now it's increasingly going, being set aside, and it, and it becomes a roadblock and a barrier to people uh, receiving the gospel. Have you ever read the um, book Peace Child by, I believe it's Don Richardson? Does that ring a bell for any of you? So he, um, I'm going to probably butcher the story a little bit, but he was a missionary in, uh, I believe it was Papua New Guinea, maybe 50 years ago. And he, um, he was learning the language and trying to share the gospel with this culture. And once he had enough language learned, he talked to them about Jesus' betrayal. And if I recall correctly, when he got to the point where he talked about Judas betraying Jesus... They're like, yeah, right on. And he's just like shocked. And he, he didn't understand, like, how could you be 
cheering that, but apparently there were some things built in their culture that made betrayal a virtue. So that when he came to that point in the gospel story, it was like, well, this is, this is actually, Judas is like the hero of the text and Jesus isn't. So then he had to kind of like think of a way of getting around it. And he discovered that in their culture, uh, if there was war between two tribes, sometimes maybe the chief or a significant person in this tribe would take his own child and he would bring it over and offer it to this tribe. And this tribe would then raise their child. And this child was called the peace child. And so then he had like his eureka moment. So then he reframed the gospel and presented Jesus as the peace child to, um, for humanity to become once again, friends of God. And that's what made the breakthrough that led to the conversion of many people in this tribe. But uh, missiologists have studied that a lot. And one of the conclusions is that if you can convince a culture that something that is actually virtuous is not virtuous, or you can convince a culture that something that you have to fundamentally believe in order for the gospel to click, if you can take that building block out, then you've succeeded in, in, from a human perspective, obviously the Holy Spirit can overcome, but you've succeeded in creating, creating an impenetrable barrier to the gospel in that culture. And so we need to think about this as a church, that people don't always think like us, especially if you're raised in the church and you, you understand the idea of this guy here is a retired cop. He knows about punishment. He's doled it out all his life. And if you've been in, uh, if you're a lawyer or you're a parent and you've raised your kids, you, you know about the concept of punishment and discipline. Or if you're a retired school teacher, right? You know about that. But a lot of people in the younger generation, they didn't even believe that's appropriate. Isn't that the whole philosophy? That's part of it. Postmodernism is the philosophy or worldview that downplays or denies the validity of objective data. That nothing is objective, it's all subjective. And that plays into that as well. It downplays it or it denies objective truth. Um, so subjectivity is a problem. The tossing of discipline, punishment is a problem. I, I, I have had people get upset with me in our church for teaching on child discipline in the past. Christian people. That's terrible. And oftentimes what they do is they draw from a bad experience. Well, we all know that anything that's good can become polluted. Okay, God created sex. You can pollute it. God created authority. You can abuse it. God created punishment. You can abuse it. Anything that God created can be abused or misused, but that doesn't mean we throw out what God has ordained because someone abuses it. We try to redeem it and bring it back to where it should be. That's, that's my thinking on it. So uh, a couple more passages. John one twenty nine. Matt, why don't you read that for us, man? John one twenty nine.
The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mm. Okay, good. You could also write down Hebrews 6, 19 and 20, Hebrews 9, 7 to 14, using that same motif. Now, um, let's get back to Leviticus, and I think I'll find this reference here. Leviticus 17 and verse 7. So, Let's look first at Leviticus 16 and verse 26. And he who lets the ghost, the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water that he may, and afterward he may come into the camp. Have any of you seen that verse before? Wonder what it meant. Azazel. Any of you seen that? Kind of one of those verses you just kind of... See, you're reading Leviticus too fast. Right? This is one of those... You were falling asleep when you got to this, Rich. You missed it. Yeah. And it's like, what in the world? Who's Azazel? Now, um, it isn't in your Bible? Well, that's a really bad Bible. What does yours say? It just says... And the one who released the goat as a scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. Interesting. Okay. Yours says release him into the... It doesn't say Azazel? What version do you have, sort of curiosity? It's NASB. Oh, yeah. And what version? Okay, yours says the wilderness. Okay, so um, the meaning of Azazel is debated. I want to present you with two views as to what this means, and this will actually help you to understand why some of you, your versions use the word wilderness. Um, view number one. Now, by the way, the reason why I'm talking about this, well, let me explain view number one first, and then I'll tell you why. So view number one is that Azazel is the name of a supernatural demonic power who lives in the wilderness. Apart from Yahweh God, he's a demon, a goat demon, a goat God. You know, the pentagram and goats and the pentagram and modern witchcraft. This is not a modern notion, but it's an ancient notion that associates goats with the devil himself or a demon of some sort. Now, one of the uh, verses that's often mentioned under this view, this interpretation is the next chapter, um, Leviticus 17.7. So look at Leviticus 17.7. 
where it says, um, they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever to them through their generation. So there's some that believe Azazel is a goat demon that the people would send. It's like a payment to the devil. So in order to appease Yahweh, you send the goat off to the devil. And then we got to go to Isaiah 34, 14. Isaiah 34, 14. And it says there, the wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles to find and finds for herself a resting place. Like there's a lot of imagery there that, what is that all about? This, the wild goats in, in uh, Isaiah 34, 14 referred to, um, are referred to in connection with the desolation of Edom in that text. So Edom was a nation that God was opposed to, descendants of Esau, I believe. And in that passage, God is condemning the Edomites and saying, I'm going to bring desolation upon you. And the wild goats are referred to in connection with that. The Revised Standard Version translate this as the night hag, or Lilith, you may have heard of feminists worshiping a god they call Lilith. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Um, we also know, according to Second Chronicles eleven fifteen, that goat idols were worshipped during Rehoboam's reign. Who's Rehoboam? He's the nitwit son of Solomon, and succeeded in splitting the kingdom because he decided to listen to his poker buddies instead of the seasoned wise men of Israel. And outside the scriptures, in a book called First Enoch, which finds itself in the Apocryphal, Apocrypha, First Enoch identifies Azazel as the angel leader of Genesis 6. So if you take the view that the Nephilim were angel-men hybrids in Genesis 6 that procreated with women, in the Apocryphal book of First Enoch, which is an ancient book, so it may give some insight into ancient mindsets. It um, associates Azazel with the leader of those angels in Genesis six, and then um, in Matthew twelve forty three, and again in Luke eleven twenty four. In both of those passages, demons are 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 pictured as wandering in the wilderness. Right? Even even the devil himself takes Jesus out into the wilderness. So. Why am I telling you all this? Because many critics of the scriptures look for things like this in the Bible to try to build a case that the Bible is a compilation of ancient religious worldviews. It's the same thing when we looked at the first few chapters of Genesis. And I told you that one theory, it's a, it's a theory, there's no proof to it. But one of the theories of, of Genesis, that Genesis is a compilation of people that worship Yahweh over here 
and Elohim over here and a God by another name over here, the names that we now call our God, you know, Lord, Elohim, Yahweh, there's some others in there too. It kind of blended them all together. So this is why when you're reading Genesis, you have God being called by different names because it's like the blending of at least four different ancient religious traditions. And then when you look at this too, if Azazel is a demon, not only does it kind of rock our theology that God is not equal to Satan and Satan is not equal to God and Jesus didn't die on the cross to pay off Satan for our sins, but he died as an atonement for our sins so we might be saved from eternal hellfire. But it also calls into question the truthfulness or the veracity of the historical scriptures. Okay? So, one view is that the um, Jews believed in a god, a demon god that lived in the wilderness that they had to appease in order to be made right with Yahweh God. And the word is Azazel there, by the way, in the Hebrew. So, um, some translations just transliterate it using those letters and let you make the decision. The second view is that it refers to um, to uh, uh, the place that the goat was sent to, to the wilderness itself. Now, the arguments for this are as follows. In Leviticus 7.4, or sorry, in Leviticus 17.7, the one about the goat idols, which is like the next chapter over, it's not condoning goat demon worship. It's forbidding it. So if Azazel in the 16th chapter is a goat demon and they're sending the scapegoat to the goat demon, why just a few handfuls of verses later would God be forbidding it? So it seems like it's two different situations. Secondly, uh, the purpose of the goat is to live as a symbol of atonement. So the idea wasn't send the goat out to be destroyed. The idea was send the goat out to live as an atonement for your sin, but in a wilderness place, like a, a, a forsaken place. By being forsaken by the community of, I don't want to be humorous, but by the community of goats and humans, the lonely goat experiences the desolation and the separation that humanity should experience for their sins against God. And if Azazel is a destructive demon god that destroys it, then the metaphorical image of the scapegoat kind of fails. Like, How is that different than the goat that was sacrificed on the altar? The word Azazel uh, in Hebrew, okay, this is what's interesting, and this is where some of the confusion comes in with translation. So, um, uh, maybe I'll just help you with this a little bit. A little, a little, a very quick lesson in language. Um, the, okay, so th let's say this is Israel. So this is the Mediterranean Sea. This is Israel. When we do Israel, we do two bodies of water. 
Which one's this? And then we got the Jordan River, and then we have the Dead Sea, more or less, right? Now, which direction? North, south, east, west. Which direction did Abraham come from? Abraham. The, gyp, the wilderness wanderings, he came up this way. What direction did Abraham come from? From north. North? North, east. East, okay, good. So this area over here is Mesopotamia, okay? And Mesopotamia, there was different people groups living there over the years, but the, the, the main, the overarching, like the, the, big, the big language kind of like the lingua franca, like English today, was called Aramaic. Now, Aramaic had dialects. And Hebrew is actually a dialect dialect of Aramaic. So, it doesn't mean that every word matches up, but it's like a sub-language. It's like low German, high German. It's like... Um, I was going to say Latin and Pig Latin. <laughs> so it's a dialect. I couldn't think of any other illustrations. A dialect of this. So Hebrew uses, so like some of the Hebrew um, letters look like this. They're, they're very, this is called, well, these are the Hebrew letters. And these Hebrew letters all kind of fit within little boxes. Like they're they're kind of square looking, and so um, the Hebrew alphabet is actually the Aramaic alphabet, and guess what they call it? Aramaic square. So if you're just looking at these letters in Scripture, right, and you're um, not sure what that is. <laughs> But if you're just looking at these letters and you're reading, like, let's say, the Hebrew Bible, um, and then all of a sudden it switches over to Aramaic, if you don't know the languages, you wouldn't even notice the difference because it's the same alphabet. But it's actually, they're actually different words. And the, the Hebrew Bible was written mostly in Hebrew using the Aramaic square. But parts of it were written in Aramaic, especially most of the second chapter through the seventh chapter of Daniel. Why? Yeah, they were back up here in Babylon. So all of those, those six chapters that talk about Daniel the lion's den and the young men in the fiery furnace and the collapse of Nebuchadnezzar and the humiliation of Belshazzar and all that, they wanted the Babylonians to read those things to show the power of their God. So they wrote them in Aramaic, uh, the Aramaic language instead of the Hebrew language. And then the parts about prophecy or Daniel's fidelity to God, those were written in Hebrew because they didn't want the general populace to read those verses. It was kind of a, it's pretty cool, actually, what, how that happened. So all this is to say, words overlap, but the word in Hebrew for Azazel I didn't look this up, but it would be something like uh, 
something like that with some vowel marks in between it, because this is A Z L basically. <laughs> and this word in Hebrew means um, goat. But in Aramaic, it means to go. It's like not even the same. So the question is, back in Leviticus, were they borrowing a word from Aramaic or using more of an Aramaic meaning to it and meaning to go, to go away into a forlorn place, or were they referring to a goat itself when they said so where's, uh, uh, where's Greek comes into this? Okay. So, so Greek, it was the lingua franca come the time of the New Testament. So now the, the world had been Hellenized, right? And the, the, uh, the Greek rulers you know, from Alexander the Great, third century onward, kind of took over the world. And about three, I think it was about 300 years before Christ, the whole of the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And that's called the Septuagint. We use the Roman numerals for 70, the Septuagint. So I'm just laughing that you asked the question because my next point was that the, uh, the LXX translates this statement as the goat sent away. Now, Here's what you need to understand. Let's say Moses is writing this, we'll just use rough numbers, 1,500 years before Christ. And we're trying to interpret it 2,000 years after Christ. That's a lot of time for words to change meanings, for subtleties to be lost. So it's super helpful if you can go back in time and climb into the headspace of people that lived closer to the event and ask the question, what, what do you think it meant? But that doesn't mean they're going to be right, because they could have misinterpreted it, because there's still hundreds of years between them and the, the LXX. But in the LXX, so this would be maybe like 1,100 years after it was written, but 2,300 years ago from our vantage point, the Greeks understood, the Greek translators of that, living in Egypt at the time, um, understood that as the goat being sent away rather than the demon god. Again, the LXX isn't always accurate, but it's helpful. Why is it helpful? Well, Jesus quoted from it. So a lot of the, this is fascinating, that a lot of the, the Old Testament passages that Jesus quoted from were actually from a translation of the Hebrew, the LXX. And... Um, that doesn't mean that if you were talking to Jesus about, you know, how accurate is this LXX, that he, he would have necessarily said, oh, it's 100% accurate, but it was accurate enough that he often quotes from it rather than the Hebrew source itself. A, a couple final points. Um, the purpose of the Day of Atonement is to appease God's wrath, not demons' wrath. And the same rings true for the sacrifice of Christ. If anybody ever preaches... Jesus died on the cross to appease the wrath of Satan? No. No, he didn't die on the cross to appease the wrath of Satan. 
That makes Satan like Jesus co-equal somehow, or God's co-equal. Jesus died on the cross to appease the wrath of God. And so I think both linguistically, contextually, and theologically, it's better to uh, deny the goat demon theory and to take this passage as a reference to the wilderness. Now, this is a lot of time on one little verse, but it's valuable for one further reason. Uh, just the process that we've went through to get to this conclusion is the same kind of process you're going to want to go through in other places of the scripture where you bump into something that might be a little bit questionable or confusing. Like to kind of think through the details, explore some words, try to understand context, and then arrive at a reasonable conclusion. Okay? Any comments or questions about that? Was that fun or what? See, I told you that uh, Leviticus wasn't all boring. And Jack looks like he's going to fall asleep. But... <laughs> yeah. Sex and demon goats? What else could you ask for? In the class, right? <laughs> All right, so we have another one, the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. Ah, I won't write it up here. You can write it down. Feast of Tabernacles is also known as the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Ingathering, or the Feast of Sukkot. The Feast of Sukkot. And this takes place in the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days which would be early to late October. On the first day, no ordinary work is allowed. And then for seven days, food offerings are presented to the Lord. And then on the eighth day, a day of rest is kept and a food offering is presented. Nowadays, even in Jerusalem, a lot of Jews will build little huts on their porches or backyards, and they'll live in those um, for that one-week period of time. And what, what does it commemorate? Living in, the Living in the desert for 40 years. So it just reminds them. It's like going to uh, the pinery tenting kind of thing for a week. But instead of doing it for leisurely purposes, you do it to remember, oh, we have this nice house, but remember when we lived in the desert for 40 years, now God sustained us and supported us and all that kind of thing. So here's what we, here's what we need to understand. Because we have, we have feasts and celebrations of our own. Almost all of them have been secularized. Easter's been secularized, more about the Easter bunny and chocolate eggs. Halloween's been secularized. It was ho holy evening before All Saints Day. Christmas has been secularized. Um, I mean, the concept of Thanksgiving's been secularized. I know these aren't mandated uh, they're not mandated annual festivals in Scripture, okay? Like, you don't, you don't have to, every March or April, celebrate Easter, specifically. You don't have to celebrate Christmas, right? In fact, when I was a little boy, I was in a church, we didn't celebrate those things. I didn't even know what those things were. We celebrated the biblical episodes pretty much every week. You know, we talked about the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and all that kind of thing. But we didn't mark them out on a calendar and make a holiday out of them. 
And part of that reasoning, which has some validity to it, is because it's so secularized. This is like in the 1970s. How much more has it been secularized since? Uh, however, um, we're not banned from celebrating these things either. We're not mandated and we're not banned from it. And if we can leverage them as opportunities to remember the purpose behind them, it's sort of in the same pattern. There's that word again. Not all that interested in laws. But it's in the same pattern as things we see under the old covenant and things we see Jesus participating in. Jesus was Jewish. He was participating in the Passover when he commemorated what? The last supper, the last supper right? The Lord's supper is a Christianized version of the Passover. All, all sorts of additional meaning is imported into it. But it's the Christianized version of the Passover. Jesus is celebrating that. The disciples, after Jesus ascended to heaven, are celebrating or commemorating Pentecost. So you can't say all oh, the scripture bans under the new covenant the celebration of certain days that commemorate certain events. Nor can you say, well, you, you have to celebrate Christmas and you have to do it on uh, December 25th. We all know that's not when Jesus was born. Okay, It's just a day on a calendar that we actually stole from some pagans centuries ago. Whatever. If you want to make a lot out of that, that's up to you. It doesn't rock my boat. But um, when we celebrate these things, I would say that they're pointless unless you're actually celebrating the thing that they're supposed to commemorate. And this is the challenge. We see this at Christmas. I mean, let's be honest. We all spend far more time shopping at Christmas than we ever do celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. I mean, we have people that don't even come to church on Christmas if it lands on a Sunday because they're opening gifts. It's, it's like, it's pitiful. And it shows how and I'll just say this one other thing, because it's a bit of a pet peeve for me, if you can't tell already. Um, where there's so much emphasis on family, 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 it's family. It's both. No, it's not about your family. I mean, it's great. You get some time off and you can hang out with family. But Christmas is not, by definition, family time. That's not what it is. It's not what it is. Christmas is about celebrating the birth of the Son of God coming to the world in human flesh. That's what it's about. But even in our churches... Oh, it's about family. We can't come to the Christmas Eve service. We got a family gathering. Really? Really? You know, we can't come on Christmas morning because it lands on a Sunday every six or seven years. Because the family's opening gifts. It's our tradition. You know, we're up early. The stockings are hanging by the fireplace. And, you know, you, you know it all. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. <laughs> You're the worst. <laughs> um, and then Easter, same thing, same thing, right? Um, the the inundation or the, the the backfilling of Easter with like chocolate and gifts and uh, it's not as bad as Christmas Easter egg hunts and all that kind of stuff. These aren't bad things, you know. Thank God for chocolate, right? Any amens? Okay. But uh, I think you guys invented that, right? The Latin Americans. Yeah, I think you did. Chocolate. Or chocolate. chocolate. <laughs> Didn't they give us like the cocoa bean? Of course you do. You don't even know that? 
Come on. <laughs> thank these guys for it after. Yeah, so um, the point is, is that uh, so many of these things can just be lost and meaningless. But they are great opportunities to kind of come back and in a very focused way remember and celebrate something that's important. But probably better to cancel them if they've lost their meaning, right? Because then we might be guilty of the sin of sacrilege. Um, yeah. Um, okay, real quick. Offerings. We haven't talked about offerings yet. Leviticus 1, the burnt offering. Like, oh, there's all these offerings. Can't figure them out. Okay, the burnt offering. Not all offerings are burnt. The burnt offering was atonement for sin. It was a male herd animal without defect, like a sheep, a goat, or... If you were poor, a young pigeon or a dove, it's presented at the entrance. They lay hands on it. They sprinkle blood on the sides of the altar. They arrange the wood. They wash the inner parts. There's some gore there. You have people nowadays, ew. You can imagine seeing like a chicken's head cut off. So gross. Because we go to the grocery store for our food. But ancient peoples and not so ancient peoples are used to slaughtering their own animals. And in the sacrificial system, that was part of the deal. How many of you here have ever slaughtered an animal? I have many. See, very few. Like, there's like six of you. And only one girl. Your hand up at the back. So people just don't typically do this, right? But under the Old Covenant, you're reading, it's like it looks gross, it's, but they're used to the, the sight of blood, but the blood is being flung on the side of the altar as an atonement for sin. And it was burned in its entirety as atonement for sin. And there's a lot of different details to it. So if it's an animal from the flock, check this out. You've got to slaughter it on the north side of the altar. And they've got to sprinkle blood on all sides. And it has to be cut into pieces. And you have to arrange the head and the fat in a certain way in the wood. If it's a bird, you have to bring it to the priest. He wrings its neck. He burns it. The blood is drained out a certain way. You have to remove the crop and its contents. You have to throw it on the east side of the altar. You have to tear open its wings without severing it. Like There's all these details to it. You're like, why do we need to know this? Like Paper was expensive. Why are you writing all these details down? Because it shows that when sin is committed, there are uh, high standards and expectations to have your sin atoned for. And under the burnt offering, here's what it says. In 1, 9, 13, and 17, it was like a sweet aroma to the Lord. Okay? Now, on Sunday, when I was preaching, I talked about prayers of God's people as being like incense. And so this is a theme woven through Scripture. This idea of God being pleased with something we bring to him, it's like the smell of fresh bread or the smell of uh, flowers in the spring or the smell of your favorite perfume, or whatever you want to pick. It's, it's a pleasurable thing to God for him to see a sinner so acknowledge his or her sin that they're willing to go through all of these rituals in order to say, we actually are sorry for our sin, and willing to give something of value to have our sin forgiven. Then there's the grain offering. Fine, this is Leviticus 2. Fine flour, oil, incense. No yeast, because that symbolized evil. No honey, that symbolized a pollutant. No seasoning. You bring it to the 
priest, he takes a handful of flour, oil, and incense, makes the loaf. It's crumbled, it's poured on, it's burned, and the leftovers go to the priest. In chapter 2, verse 2, it's an aroma to the Lord. Chapter 5, the sin offerings. This is like when you won't admit to having seen a crime and then you're caught. Or you touch an unclean thing like a dead animal or a dead human. Or you take a rash oath or an irrational oath. I'm going to do this. And then you don't do it because you weren't really thinking. This requires a sin offering. And you bring the sheep or the goat. And uh, if you can't afford that, two birds can be brought and so forth and so on. Then there's a guilt offering. Guilt offerings are for unintentional sins against the holy things of God. You didn't intend it, but you still did it. So this would be maybe um, some deception. You know, you give a deposit, you don't actually pick up the item, or you take too much security. It could also apply to robbery, oppression, lying about a lost item, swearing falsely, not like killing people or blaspheming God, but things that are run-of-the-mill, everyday sins that some of us probably committed this week. And it's conditional... There's an if clause there. It's conditional upon if. If he will make amends, a sacrifice will be brought to the Lord. I want you to think about this for a minute. In God's law, the principle is this. It's not enough at times just to do business with me. You have to also make things right with the person you've offended. This is a really important principle in Scripture. It's not just about retribution, but it's about you're offering something at the altar and you realize you've sinned against a brother. You go make it right. And this is a really important scripture because a lot of people just sidestep this. They're like, well, yeah, I divorced my spouse and committed adultery, but I, I, did, I made it right with God. So God and I are good. I, we can move on. Did you ever apologize? Did you ever ask for forgiveness? No, nah, they wouldn't accept it anyway. There's still a problem. Oh, I stole something from my neighbor. You know, but I don't really want them to know because they might call the police on me. So I just had a little prayer with the Lord, and the Lord, Lord and I got, got it right, and things are good. Oh, you should go and have a conversation. So the, this particular uh, offering required that. If you'll make amends, and only if you'll make amends, then my relationship with you, the God and human relationship, can be corrected. And it had to be a lamb without blemish, valued at three shekels, and it, whether it's intentional or unintentional. Uh, Rev, uh, Leviticus 6, 8 to 30. This is the priestly duties and the rites concerning sacrifices. So they were allowed to receive... Um, oh, sorry, this is a little different part here. Laws of burnt offerings. They, uh, burnt offerings must be kept on the altar all night. They had to wear special ceremonial garments... The fire must be kept burning. Ashes had to be, even the ashes were sacred. They had to be disposed of in a clean place outside the camp. So let's say you're out in the wilderness and there's several thousands of people camping out. Where do you think they went to the bathroom? Outside the camp. So there's like landmines everywhere. But the ashes from the from the altar couldn't just be taken out and dumped at a place where someone had defecated. 
because they were considered holy. They had to be put in a whole, a clean place. So even the ashes. Think, man, God is really like particular. Well, his holiness is absolutely perfect. So yeah, his laws are kind of particular as well for how your sins are atoned for. And the priests had to wear ceremonial garments. And there's symbolism to all those garments. And they symbolize certain things about God, and they symbolize certain things about representing the people of God. And if you've ever studied that, it's, it's kind of a fascinating thing. This is not a case for ministers wearing ministerial garbs today. That came later. In the 4th century, when Constantine used to surprise visit churches, people started dressing up for church. That's how it stuck, even into the present. But as best as we can tell for the first three or four centuries, people didn't dress up for church beyond what they would normally wear. This was an aroma to the Lord. So, uh, let me just skip ahead uh, without getting into too much detail. I just want to give you a little taste for some of this stuff. I want to discuss for just for a few minutes the priestly garments and the tabernacle itself. In Exodus 25 and 35, the materials for the priestly garments are laid out. Think of three purposes for the priestly garments. Number one, they're decorative. Number two, they're functional, practical. But number three, they're symbolic. And they symbolize, it's, again, it's drama. Drama, 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 drama. Symbolism, drama. The sacrificial system is, dr is drama. The waving, the burning, the smells, the configuration, it's drama. Baptism is drama. The Lord's Supper is drama. Because we're tangible people, we live in a physical world, God uses physical signs, colors, shapes, smells, rituals to drive home truths. The Catholics didn't invent this stuff. They just made it idolatrous. But these things are actually woven into the pages of Scripture. So it drives me nuts when people, Protestants, we shouldn't have any cross in our church. We shouldn't have any stained glass is wrong or any Christian art is wrong. Really? Really? If it's idolatrous, yeah, let's get rid of that stuff. But architecture can serve a purpose. Art can serve a purpose. Ritual can serve a purpose. Liturgy can serve a purpose. And they can serve redemptive purposes to remind us about things, to symbolize important things, or things we should avoid. But we've got to make sure we get them right. They wore a hat. They wore a tunic, a girdle, even undergarments. These are all recorded in Exodus 28. And then outside they wore a robe, an ephod, and a breastplate. And then they had this thing called the tabernacle. What's the difference between the tabernacle and the temple? Yeah. So the temple, how many, how many temples did Israel have in total? Two temples and one tabernacle. Right? So Solomon's temple is the first and then Herod's temple is the second one. And they've both been destroyed. But the tabernacle was the, was the one they used up till the time of Solomon building the temple. So it's like the portable one. And I have a little diagram here that uh, draws it out. So you have, it's 100 cubits. 
100 cubits by 50 cubits. Now a cubit, I think is roughly 18 inches or 45 centimeters, or like this long. So we could just say, depending on whether you like imperial or metric, we could say roughly 150 feet by 75 feet, or a lot of millimeters. Okay. <laughs> and inside of it, okay, so there's a, there's a gate here. And again, this is all like detail. Why do we need to know this stuff? <laughs> because God's particular when it comes to sin and his holiness. We have a brazen altar. So we have the, the altar here. This is called the outer court. Then we have a laver, which is basically a big... Um, I was going to say like a dish, a basin, yeah. And then there's uh, an inner area with a curtain. This is the uh, holy place, and this is the holy of holies. This is where the, the, the ark would be, okay? Um, inside this, there's, the, there's a... Um, candlestick and the table of showbread and it's interesting the bible details out people have built replicas of this because the measurements are all given so like for example the table of showbread is two cubits by one cubit by one and a half cubit high and the golden altar is one cubit by one cubit by one cubit so it's it tells you the size of this thing um it even determines the direction it needs to be erected when they're moving around. So this would be like the northern corner of it. It's very particular. And then when, when they were in the wilderness, you'd have like basically three tribes here, three tribes here, three tribes here. They would have a, an arrangement for how they had to, the 12 tribes had to camp around this thing. It's very particular. Okay, we're moving again. You can't just go wherever you want. You have to camp on your designated area. Now, in the tabernacle, we see God communicating to his people through sights, smells, tastes, sounds, and touch. He's communicating theology through those things. And the lessons that the tabernacle hold remind the participant of the holiness of God the redemptive plan of God, things like sin, grace, and then ultimately they point to Jesus. The bronze altar in the outer court, here are some theological themes from that. Remember God said in, in uh, Exodus 25, 8, I will dwell among them. I will dwell among them. Okay, Lord, but we can't see you. You're a spirit. Well, I'm going to give you some pieces of furniture and a little tent thing and you're pretty small, so it's going to seem pretty awesome to you. And these will help you to see that I dwell among you. So in the bronze altar, here's just some theological themes. You can write these down. Innocent blood must be shed to atone for sin. There is one way to God. God alone justifies the concept of redemption. And ultimately, it points to the cross. 
that the, the, the final sacrificial lamb would be laid upon. So you think altar was the New Testament equivalent, the cross. The lamb was the ultimate New Testament equivalent, Christ. So these are not, these are not exclusively Christian. These were part of the Jewish worship under the old covenant. The, the laver in the outer court, this is where the priests would wash their hands and feet, enter the holy place. The laver, right here, symbolizes things like purity, regeneration, sanctification. What's sanctification? Yeah. Yeah. You hear that in the back? Ongoing work toward holiness. It's your, you, this, this is your life, and you're growing up spiritually. That's your sanctification. The table of showbread inside symbolized consecration. So blood, altar, washed is a labor. Consecration, 12 loaves of bread as offering of one day's labor. Bread on the, on the table of showbread. Does that ring any bells in New Testament theology? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. The lampstand giving light was the only source of light in the whole place. And this singular light in the holy place, does that sound familiar in the New Testament? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And actually, then he commissions us to be little Christs to take his light out into the world. Remember that kid's song? Don't put your, this little light of mine, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It's a good song. We should do it some Sunday. In a round. Should bring back the round. It'll, it'll come back in style eventually. Or all the ladies sing and then all the guys. It'll come back. I'm telling you, it all comes back around. Okay? Yeah, it's coming back. Hymn books are going to come back eventually in sort of three piece suits. I mean, you just got to. And organs. Yeah. Okay, so we have the lampstand. Then we have the incense altar symbolizing access. This is in the holy place. And this is a sweet smell which remind of intercession and mediation. The ark is the presence of God. And the theological theme there is God is with us. God is with us. We know it because our high priest went in and he offered atonement for us. We see that in Christ. God with us is Christ. Um, and then we have finally the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies, which symbolizes mercy where God hovers above. And it's only through the high priest that we can have access to God. And who's the new Testament high priest and who are the next step down? Who are the priests? We are not me. I'm not your priest or Hey, no, you don't have to pray through me. No, no. You have direct access. I can pray for you, but you have access to God. I can pray for you. You pray with one another. What I can't pray for is for you to be forgiven for your sins. 
You have to do that on your own. I can pray that you would come to that point, but I have to pray to God for my for forgiveness for my own sins. So here we have all this drama and all this symbolism. We don't want to overdo it because there are groups of Christians that have overdone this and loses its meaning just as it did at times under the old covenant. But again, I just love the idea that God acknowledges our humanity and he's communicating to us through all of our senses, his theology. And then those themes are still woven into the New Testament and symbolized in Christ. So you can understand, you can benefit from the New Testament by itself, but there's a depth that you get when you spend the time thinking about this stuff under the old covenant, and then you read the new covenant, and our soteriology, our doctrine of salvation, is like chocked full of allusions and metaphors and images and theological equivalence between what we see in Leviticus, which you all came into this room thinking was like super boring, and we haven't just spent our time in Leviticus, we've all spent in Exodus, uh, and the New Testament and the gospel itself. So, that's all I have for tonight. Uh, hopefully that's uh, helpful for you as you read the scriptures. And I think we'll go, because we missed one week there with the storm, I think we'll go at least a couple more weeks. Uh, 26. And, yeah, we'll go the next two weeks. Yeah, maybe five or six more, it depends. Yeah. Uh, for a couple more weeks anyway. So thanks for coming. Have a great night.